0: Uh, week three of our uh, study through the book of James. Um, James is a phenomenal book. If you never actually read it, uh, the whole chapter, you should stop. It'll take you probably less than 20 minutes uh, to read it. It's just, um, But it's so power-packed that there's so much good stuff in it that you'll... uh, It's just so practical, so real. Again, uh, by way of review, the book of James was written by James, the half-brother of Christ. He's half-brother because uh, Jesus' father was the Holy Spirit. Uh, And he was the son of God. And uh, so they shared a mother, uh, Mary. Uh, James was not originally a believer, but later put his faith in in the resurrected Christ as Messiah. Uh, James was one of the uh, primary pastors of the church at uh, Jerusalem. And then uh, he writes to the churches, I'm sorry, to the Christians that have been scattered from Jerusalem. uh, The Jews specifically in this case here that he's writing to. Uh, He starts off in verse number one, to the 12 tribes scattered that he writes to them. And basically tells them, hey, this whole faith thing is new for us. And so here's some guidelines on how we as Christians live now. Again, as he writes to the 12 tribes, they would have been very, very familiar with the law. They would have been very, very familiar with feast days, sacrifice days. Uh, They would be very, very familiar with all the finer points of the Levitical law. But James, in this case here, doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He says, hey, now that we're Christians, here's how we live. It's not about following rules and regulations. It's about having a relationship with Jesus that changes every single area of your life. And so as we get into uh, James chapter 1, it starts off really, uh, again, to the the churches that are scattered. They were scattered because persecution came to the church of Jerusalem. Uh, the, there was only one church in the beginning, the church that uh, Jesus started there in Jerusalem. The apostles preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, 3,000 people saved, baptized, added to the church that very first Sunday. People grew, uh, people got saved every single day and were being added to the church by the thousands. And we see a multiplication of uh, believers in the church uh, to where uh, some people estimate it was probably anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people were in a part of this church in the beginning. And then persecution came to Jerusalem and the church scattered now, you might look at that and go, wow, that's a terrible thing that persecution came. No, God used that to scatter the church. Because if you can imagine, if we live today and the only church in the world was Jerusalem and we all had to go to Jerusalem to go to church, how much of a drag would that be? But the whole idea of the scattering of the church meant that the church now was no longer confined by a single physical location. Now the church could meet wherever Christians gathered. And so he writes to them and says, hey, guys. Verse number two, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, different types of trials, and knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, he says, in verses one through three. And so he says, hey, and again, in verse number two, it says temptations, the word temptation could also be used uh, as the word trial, uh, could be used interchangeably there in this case here. And the idea of the word that's used here, the, the Greek word periasmos, is the idea of of examining something very closely looking for a fault. And so the idea of this trial that we're going through, or the trials that you and I will go through, or the trials that the early church went through, was not a matter of to, to, uh, to uh, make them discouraged or frustrate them in their faith. It was a matter of to show them what they were really made of. And when we talk about tests and trials, God doesn't test us to see if, if we'll really come through to let Him know if we're faithful or not. Because God always knows whether or not we'll be faithful. God tests us to show us whether we have what it takes to make it or not. And so, again, it's more of a a desire to show us uh, what we might be lacking and how we can grow. And and James goes on to say that these trials that are working in you are doing a really good work. And again, I talked about the last week that you might not like the process, but you're going to love the product. Now, when we talk about suffering, people have a lot of different questions when it comes to the idea of suffering, and it's important that we understand, first of all, the different types of suffering that we find in the Bible. The first type of suffering that we find in the Bible is unjust suffering. This is things that take place when things go wrong. Uh, We think of the first type of suffering would be the punishment for sin for the unsaved man. You've broken God's law. There's punishment and wrath coming as a result of your sin. You're held accountable for your sin. The wrath of God abides on you, the Bible says, that the things that take place in your life are God's punishment for sin, but God's ultimate and final punishment for sin will be poured out upon uh, all those who die in their sins in a place called hell. God's wrath and torment will be poured out for all of eternity. This will be suffering because of an unjust lifestyle. You've sinned against God. These are the consequences of your sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 1, verse number 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So again, the wrath of God is revealed against those who live an unrighteous life. The wrath of God is coming, and they will suffer as a result of living in opposition to God's word. So you, you might say, well, then, well, that's good because if I'm saved, then I'll never uh, endure suffering as a result of the things that I've done wrong. Hang on, we're getting there for just a second. Secondly, when it, as for Christians, when we sin, here's, this is really important that you get this. For you and I as Christians, if you're a child of God tonight, I'm talking to you specifically. For you and I as Christians, when we sin, we will never, ever be punished for our sin. Now, again, it's important to understand what the word punished means. The word punished means punitive action taken. You've broken the law, so you're going to get this as punishment for what you have done. For example, if you park in a a place and you forget to feed the meter, you're given a $35 fine as a punitive judgment. Because you've broken the law, you pay $35. That's the idea behind it. That's a punitive judgment that's made. You break the law, you pay the fine. Here's the thing about you and I. When we sin against God and we receive God's chastisement, we don't receive God's punishment. Because for us as Christians, our sin has already been punished and it was punished on the cross of Calvary when Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So my sin has already been punished. I'll never receive punishment for my sin as long as I live. I will never get a tit for tat from God. You broke the law. Here's what you're required to pay. Because God's wrath is no longer upon me. God's punishment is no longer coming for me because I have settled my score with God and the fact that Jesus Christ has paid my debt, God sees me as righteous before him. Because I've accepted Christ as Savior. So, for the Christian, you'll never be punished for your sin, but you will be chastised for your sin. So, again, if you want to continue to sin after you're saved, you're free to do that. But the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That word chastened means a loving discipline or correction. If you keep your finger here in James and go back. It might even be on the same page. In my Bible, it's one page over on the left-hand side. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse number five, Hebrews twelve five, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Hey, if God is trying to discipline you, if God's trying to correct you, don't blow him off. Don't think that you're having a, a terrible thing done to you. Verse number six, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That word scourge means to literally to spank him, to to cause him to come back to a right relationship. Parents, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of how our discipline towards our children should come. You should never discipline your children in anger. You should never discipline them in wrath. You should never seek to physically harm them uh, on purpose for the sake of harming them. The idea is that I want to put something in your life that you'll never forget ever again to not come back here. I'm going to place something in your life so that when you think about doing this again, you'll remember what took place the last time. That's loving discipline that comes from a loving parent. Now, you may or may not have been disciplined in a loving manner growing up. Some people have said, my parents were, went over the top with it maybe even gotten into abuse, and because of that, I don't want to spank my children. I think that's a, a poor decision, and I think that you need to really think through what the Bible says about that. And again, I'm not trying to give blanket parenting advice right now, I'm just saying the Bible says whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and the Bible says that if you, if you scourge not your son, you hate your kids, you don't love them, that a lack of discipline isn't a love for your children, it's actually hatred. And so again, I'm not trying to give blanket advice and I know that every situation is different and your situation could be different. So I'm not saying if you do it differently than this, you're a terrible parent. I'm just saying you need to think through the discipline process because discipline is always done in love and discipline always communicates love. I used to think when I was a, a kid that all my, my friends who got to the opportunity to run all over the neighborhood and do whatever they want, stay out as late as they want to and, and then come to find out later they were out smoking cigarettes and then drinking beer and going to parties and getting drunk and things like that. I thought, man, their parents let them have fun right? But then you look back and you say, wait, wait, wait. wait!" You get older and you realize their parents didn't care about them at all. Their parents didn't care if they were out till three o'clock in the morning. They didn't care what they were doing or who they were with. There was no love there at all. And believe it or not, the the people who received love are the ones who were given restriction because of what was best for them. And so again, we see here from Scripture that Christians, you cannot continue to sin and get away with it because if God loves you, if you're his child, you'll endure chastening. Verse number seven, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then your are bastards are not sons. Verse eight's a really heavy verse there. And the word bastard means fatherless child, but it's meant to be a strong word even in a biblical sense. And the idea is this, if you can continue to sin and never see negative repercussions from it, chances are you're probably not a child of God. You're probably not saved. Because you cannot continue to sin against God and get away with it. I have a member of my my family who has rebelled against God for probably over two decades. And I know for a fact that they're saved because their life continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse. The more that they rebel against God, the harder their life gets the more that they kick against the pricks, the more that God cranks up the heat on them and their life has completely and totally fallen apart over the course of two decades. And that's how I know for sure that they're saved because God's chastisement was upon them. If they're able to continue to sin and get away with it or continue to sin and there's positive repercussions from it, it's probably because you're not a Christian. But for you and I, we need to understand that God chastens us if he loves us and if we're his children. Verse number 9 goes on and says, Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh. You had dads who were uh, fleshly dads who corrected us, and we gave them reverence. You respected your dads. So we might not much rather be in subjection to the Father's spirits and live. Verse number 11, No chastening for the present seemed joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them, which are exercised thereby. So again, the idea here is this, that God drives us when we fall into rebellious sin against him. He drives us to repentance through chastening. And there were time, will be times that you and I suffer because we've made poor decisions. We're in rebellion to God and God is trying to do whatever he can to get your attention. You say, well, will God hurt me if I sin against him? He's not above it. Would God take my job as a result of chastisement? He's not above it. Would God take my, my children to chastise me? He's not above it. Because as we'll find out in the book of James, everything you have he's given to you anyways and he has no obligation to give you anything at all. And so in his loving, chastening hand to draw you back to him, he'll take whatever he needs to take and do whatever he needs to do to bring you back into a right relationship with him so that your focus is back on him where it de- deserves to be. And so as Christians, we might sometimes face suffering as a result of the decisions that we made and our decision to rebel against God. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. I'm going to bring you back a little bit. I'm going to take you down a notch, as my dad used to say. And God will place his chastening hand upon us. And so, again, we need to, to be very aware of that because when trials and suffering come, for me, as a Christian, the first question I ask is, okay, What's this about? God, have I sinned against you? Is this a chastening moment? Have I done something wrong that you're trying to get my attention? Because if you do, you got it. I mean, man, for me, one of the first times that we experienced serious suffering as a family, I confessed every sin that I could possibly think of back until I was five years old. Because I wanted to make sure that everything was right between me and God because I didn't want this to be chastisement. And so again, it's not something we need to to figure out like, oh, I had a flat tire today. Is this God's chastisement? We're talking about like real suffering, more than just having a bad day. Everybody has their bad day. But when we face times of suffering, we as Christians need to ask ourselves, is everything right between me and God? Because let me tell you this, if if you go through a time of suffering, everything is not 100% right between you and God. You can't afford it to be wrong between you and God. I need God to hear my prayers. I need God to act on my behalf. I need God to look out for me. And if he's taken his hands off of me, he's removed his hand of blessing from me, and he's placed his hand of chastening upon me, I need to know that so I can make things right because I don't want this to be any longer than it has to be. So again, we need to be very aware that punishment is not what God does for Christians. My sin has already been punished. God is not trying to get me back for what I've done to him. God is trying to bring me back to a right relationship through chastening though. So God punishes the unsaved. He chastens the saved. And then for the saved and the unsaved, there's just flat out consequences for sin. That's all there is to it. Sin is terrible. And it always has consequences. For the man or woman who's steeped in pornography, just know this, there's consequences for everybody with this. It's not God's chastisement, it's not God's judgment, it just hurts everybody around. And again, so many times people think, well, this is just my, my own personal sin, I'm dealing with it between me and God. Your sin always touches people around you, always. And you might be so foolish as to say, well, I don't really have that many people in my life that it was effect, would affect. If you attend Hui a Baptist Church, it affects this church. And for that reason, it becomes very, very personal. So your sin is not your private secret sin that you do. Your sin affects the body. It affects every person around you. And it hurts the name of Christ. And so there's always consequences for sin. That's why when I'm talking to people sometimes about eternal security, I was having a a conversation with a guy who was a Pentecostal several years ago about about eternal security, about the fact that we cannot lose our salvation because we sin. And he said, well, that means you could just sin as much as you want and get away with it. I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. He goes, why would you say that? I said, why would you want to sin? Sin brings about death and destruction. Pleasure and sin for a season? Sure. But in the end, there's death and destruction. Why would you purposely set yourself up for a life of death and destruction? Also, you're not going to get away with it because God will chasten those who are his children. Simple as that. You cannot continue to sin and get away with it from God. There will always be repercussions, always, if you're a child of God, because God will not allow his name to be blasphemed. Simple as that. And so God will do whatever it takes to get your attention and to correct you and bring you back into a right relationship with him. Again, James chapter 1, verse number 15, we'll get to this uh, at some point in our study. When lust hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. The end result of sin is always death destruction the word death doesn't mean we're going to die because that's already a given the word death means separation it causes space between us and god we begin to die spiritually we begin to be disconnected from god it creates a distance between us and god and it always hurts everybody around us and so again it's one of those things that we as christians you just can't afford it don't mess with it don't play with it Again, we're talking about on Sunday mornings, sanctification, putting our sin to death, following after Jesus Christ and righteousness. That's where we need to be. But sometimes we're gonna suffer because of sin. For the unsaved man, it's his punishment. For the saved man, it's his chastisement. And then at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are, there's just flat out consequences for sin. Even when we look at things like death, even death from natural causes, Man, why would this happen? Nobody was ever supposed to die. Sin entered in the world, and death has passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. Sin is an end result, uh, I'm sorry, death is an end result of sin. And so even when we look at things like losing a family member or a loved one, what's the end result of that? The reason why that happens is because ultimately of of sin. And so, again, that's why, again, any view of God that thinks that God is soft on sin or that sin's not a big deal to God or it's fine, you're just fine the way that you are, God just wants you to be happy. It's just a foolish view because sin is repugnant and repelling to God. So we talk about unjust suffering, that's what we're talking about. We talk about just suffering, though, like, hey, I've done nothing wrong, but I continue to suffer. What is that about? We're talking about trials for the glory of God and for our own personal good. And again, I know that's difficult for us to process. That you as a Christian, you might be doing everything 100% right. No unconfessed sin in your life, desiring the things of God, walking with Jesus, sharing your faith with other people, heart of worship, adoration, praise towards God. Everything's going right, and then just boom, out of nowhere. You get hit like a Mack truck, and you're just like, where did that come from? And then we realize... It's not a matter of, have I done anything wrong? It's not a matter of, like, hey, let's get to the source of this so that we can get past this. It's a matter of, nope, God's getting ready to do something special in your life. Again, one of the first times of sufferings that our family went through was our daughter McKeeley was one years old, and we thought she was going to die. And I remember for about 30 seconds sitting in the uh, urgent care room in uh, California and thinking, like, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's the deal? Like, here I am trying to live for you, live a right life, serve you in my life, and this is what I get? And I had a pity party, legit. It lasted probably 30 seconds. And then I just stopped. I took a deep breath. I grabbed my wife by the hand. We prayed and just said, God, be glorified through this. That's it. If there's something that's not right in my life, this is chasing, let me know because I want to make it right. But I believe that you just want to do something special through this. And God did. God led us through a period where we, we trusted him like never before, where our faith grew like never before in the midst of difficulty and suffering. And people would come up to us with tears in their eyes and say, I'm so sorry to hear about your daughter. We're praying for her. And we would say, hey, it's fine. God's going God's to work it all out. Oh, did you get answers from the doctor? No, we didn't get any answers at all, but we know God's going to work it out. We trust him. He's faithful. He's going to get glory from this. I remember sitting my boys down. When my wife was at the hospital with my daughter, I sat them down in the living room and said, hey, look, your sister's really sick and they don't know what's going to happen. I turned them over to the book of Job where Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. (laughs) Even if God kills me, I'll still continue to trust him. And I said, we have to trust God through this no matter what happens. We're not just going to trust God if it works out for us. We're going to trust God if it doesn't work out the way that we want because God is always good. I remember sitting there having that conversation uh, with my boys. They, They were little then but I wanted them to get this. God just wants to get glory through this situation. And just like Paul says in Philippians chapter one, I want Christ to be magnified in my life, whether it be through my life or through my death. Either way, God's gonna get glory through this. So buckle up, it's gonna be an awesome ride. Even this recent health problems that we have with my daughter back in February this year, didn't know what's going on, don't know the answers to it, but here's what I know, God's gonna get glory from this. It's gonna be an awesome story to tell one day. And I remember that first Sunday morning when my daughter had just gotten put into the ICU and she'd gone through uh, septic shock and they didn't know she was going to make it and she ended up having to ha- have a, a platelet transfusion and uh, they had 17 bags hanging off of the, the tree that she was hooked up to and everything. And uh, the doctor came in and they said, we're going to have to ask you guys to leave while we do what we're doing here. And so my wife and I went to the uh, the cafeteria. We sat outside at the cafeteria. I, mean, I was just in shock. And I sat there for a minute and I said... Um, Hey, I know one day we're gonna say it, so I'm just gonna go ahead and get it out of the way. And she said, what? I said, God's good. I mean, like, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I just know that God's good. And like one of these days we'll look back at this and we'll say, God is good, but I don't want to wait one day and look back at this and say, God's good. I'm just gonna say it right now I'm and get it out of the way. God's good. And mean, we sat there and we prayed and just trusted God. Like, I don't know what's going on. The doctors don't know what she's got, what's gonna fix it. They're throwing, they're throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks at this point. But I said, hey, we're just going to trust God through this. And this wasn't a matter of we had sinned and we had done anything wrong. This is a matter of God wanting to be glorified through this situation. And again, we get that idea from John chapter 9. If you want to flip back there in your Bible right now, you can do that. Uh, John chapter uh, 9, verse number 1. This is really powerful for those of you that ask the question, why? Is Isn't that a question that we always want the answer to when we go through suffering? God, why is this happening? What are you trying to do? Why would this happen to me? It's funny because that's not unique to us. The apostles did the same thing. John chapter 9, verse number 1. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, get this. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse number three, you should circle, start, underline, put this in your back pocket because you're going to need this one day. And Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Hmm, that's powerful. Jesus said, nobody did anything wrong. God just wants to do something special. Watch. And you and I so many times, again, we want to find somebody to blame when we go through suffering. And God's like, hold off, you don't need somebody to blame. Just trust me through this. Look, they wanted to, this kid who was born blind, born blind, who sinned, him or his parents that he was born blind. Like that that God is so terrible, that God is so awful that he would take a baby and strike it blind because it had, quote, sinned as a baby he was born blind, like, like the apostles in this case didn't even really grasp who God was. And that's why Jesus said, i straight here. Hey, nobody sinned, this guy or his parents. Now, he's not saying that his parents were sinless. He's saying that the sin was not the cause of this child being born blind. God just wanted to do something special through it. And this would be unique to this boy's story of how God's work, work, how God would work and manifest himself through this. And so we see that sometimes the answer is God just wants to get glory. Turn a few pages over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. We we touched on this this morning. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28 and 29, you need to circle, start, underline these in your Bible. You need to commit them to memory. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Again, verse 28 is a conditional promise. It's given only to Christians and only to Christians who are obeying the Bible. So again, conditional promise. If you're not a Christian and you're not obeying the Bible, God is not going to work everything out for your good. If you're not a Christian, God's going to work out everything to your great torment. Think about that for a second. It's not going to eventually work out for good. It's eventually going to work itself out in God's wrath and judgment upon your soul. It could be anything, couldn't be anything worse than good. But here's what he goes on to say in verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, also did he did predestinate. So God knew that you were going to save, and God put a plan in place before he ever created the world, predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I love verse 29. What you're going through, God put in your life to make it good. To be conformed to the image of, of his son. And that last part of the verse, so many times people skip over this again because I think that it just confuses them. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's the idea. We're being conformed to the image of God's son and Jesus is is the firstborn of the family. You know what that makes Jesus? Our big brother. And so you and I follow the example of our big brother who's gone before us and already walked the path that we're going to walk and we're trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who is the firstborn among many brethren. God has got a lot of kids, but he had one that was really special. That was the firstborn. And so again, you and I are to be conformed into the image of his son. That word conformed that's used there means to be pressed into the mold of. If we could make, it, make Jesus into a, like a, a, a clay mold and we're to press our clay up against him and pull it back out, that's what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so again, if we start at the bottom of the verse and work backwards, we have a big brother who we're supposed to be like, And all the things that are taking place in our life are to help us to be like our big brother and to be like him. That's what it means. So when you and I go through times of suffering, the whole purpose at the end of the day is for you and I to be made like Jesus. So again, you want to scratch your head and go, why is this happening to me? Two reasons that I know for sure. God wants to be glorified through it and he wants to make you like Jesus. Guaranteed. I don't know anything else that's going on in your life, but whatever you got, those are the two things that are for sure. And there might be some chastening involved in that for you. If you're not a Christian, there might be some punishment involved in there. At the end of the day, though, I know that God wants to be glorified through this, and he wants to make you like Jesus. And so I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from uh, a spouse who has, has been unfaithful to their spouse and had to walk them through this. And the question keeps coming up, why, why, why? And I often say, I know this answer isn't going to be a lot of help right now, but maybe one day when you're past all the hurt and the junk that's going on here, you'll be able to see that God used this to get himself glory and to help make you like Jesus. I know that's hard right now. I talked to people through the loss of a child. Hey, I know it's hard to, to get this right now, but God wants to use this to give himself glory. And again, if we only have a selfish mindset, We would say things like, well, God would take my child to give him glory. What a terrible God that must be. Uh, you, you got it mixed up. You see, you think that God exists for you when we actually exist for God. And the question is, God, what do you need from me to give you more glory? What's it cost me? I'm willing to pay the price because I belong to you. So again, when we take a look at the idea behind suffering, it's either going to be just or unjust suffering as a result of it. Uh, And so it's important to understand and distinguish between the two. When we talk about trials, go back to uh, James chapter 1, if you would. We take a look at verse number 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials. We can endure trials and we can go the distance by protecting our joy. Protecting our joy. It's important to understand what joy actually means before you can protect it, before you can understand it. Sometimes people confuse joy and happiness as being the same thing. They're not. They're two different things altogether. Joy is happiness based on spiritual circumstances. That's one of the best definitions that I've, I've found for joy. It's not original with me. I came across it in a book that I was reading. I thought, man, that makes sense right there. It's happiness, not based on my physical circumstances. Not based on my material circumstances, but based on my spiritual circumstances. I might be $100 overdrawn in my checking account with all my credit cards maxed out, but I can still have joy because it's not based on the contents of my bank account. I might have gotten the worst prognosis imaginable from the doctor. But my joy is not based on my health and well-being. It's based on my spiritual circumstances. I can still have joy. I can have some of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my entire life take place, and that's okay. I can still have joy because joy is not predicated on my physical or material circumstances. It's based on my spiritual circumstances. And here's what I know. I have a God that loves me. He calls me his child. Before he created the world, he knew me. There's not a hair that falls off my head that he doesn't already have numbered. There's not a breath that i don't take that he doesn't already give to me he knows where i'm at he knows what i'm going through he knows exactly what i need to make it through this and i can trust him I've got joy Hey, feels like the world has fallen apart around me man, i still got joy Man, how can you smile in times like this because god's always good all the time god's faithful I don't understand it, but he is. But when we go through times of trials, we've got to be really careful to protect our joy. Now, help me out with this tonight. What are some things that can steal our joy? What are some joy stealers? What's that? Pride. pride. <laughs> what does pride say? I don't deserve to go through this. Why is this happening to me? Like, After everything I've done, this happens to me. Are you kidding me? What about that person over there? They don't have any problems. They're blessed. They're not even Christians and they're blessed. Why me? Pride steals joy with a quickness. What else steals our joy? Comparison. I heard that over there. Oh, man. You want to lose your joy, start comparing yourself to everybody else. Because when you get frustrated with God, you'll always find somebody that's better off than you. Always. You never look at somebody else and go, man, praise God, I'm not there anymore. No, you always find the person who's doing better than you and you say, why don't I get to be like them? Why does this happen to me? And comparison always steals your joy because you're never thankful for what you have. You want what everybody else has. The Bible has words for that as well. It's called envy and covetousness, and they're both sins. What are some other things that steal our joy? Worry. Worry? <laughs> so true. Sit and think about what could possibly happen think it might have been will rogers who says i know that worrying works because everything that i worry about never actually happens some of you will get that on the way home tonight <laughs> worry steals our joy because we don't focus on the present we focus on what could possibly happen in the future i don't know if you're like me but i like to plan things out i like to plan things ahead in certain situations. And when we go on vacation, I'll just wake up wherever you go, wherever you go. My wife wants an itinerary for everything in every hour. And this is what time we'll have breakfast, and we'll finish breakfast here, and we'll catch the train over here. It's just like, nah, no, let's just wake up and go. Uh, and so, but when we begin to think too far ahead of where God has us today, we begin to worry about the future. I think that's why the Bible says take no thought for the morrow, because tomorrow will take care of itself. Hey, tomorrow's already got its own problems. Don't try to bring tomorrow's problems into today because today's got its own set of problems. So worry steals our joy. What else steals our joy? Greed. Greed? I just want more. And so when we continue to want more, whatever we have is not enough. We've got to have a little bit more. Always steals our joy and it's being content with what we have. Anybody else? Joy stealer? Unconfessed. Unconfessed sin will steal your joy every single solitary time. Every time. And man, that right there is probably one of the biggest joy killers that I've ever seen. Uh, I, as a pastor, I like to sit down and talk with people and try to help them talk through their, their life problems and things like that. I'm not a therapist or a counselor. I don't have any license or any formal training or anything like that. I'm just a good friend who knows a little bit about the Bible. That's all. But sometimes I'll talk with people and they, they might use the word depression or down or they got the blues or something like that. And I'll often ask the question, is there any unconfessed sin in your life or sin that you keep coming back to that you haven't settled with God and repented of and moved on from? And honestly, the people that I talk with, again, it's not a diagnosis that this is the root of your problem. But nine times out of the ten, people that i talk to that are struggling with depression have unconfessed sin in their life. I'm not saying that's the root cause of it. I'm saying that the people I've talked to, that's part of the problem, not the problem. Uh, again, I think it's overly simplistic to say you know, your depression is because of unconfessed sin. That's foolish. But the majority of people that I talk to, if I ask them about unconfessed sin, they say yes. And here's the thing. It'll steal your joy every time because you can't be grateful for the gospel. You can't be grateful for Jesus. You can't be grateful for victory over sin because you haven't conquered anything. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has conquered sin, death, and the grave and sets you free from it, but you're not free from it. There's no joy there. There's only disappointment. And then when we keep going back to our sin, we're frustrated and we're disappointed. We're like, why can't I fix this? Why can't I overcome this? Why do I keep going back to the same sin again and again and again? And there's no joy to be found in unconfessed sin. And there's a lot of joy when you confess that sin, forsake it, and move on, though. i guarantee you that. So some of you tonight that might be holding on to unconfessed sin, just let it go. It's not doing you any favors for sure. Other joy killers? Complacency. Hey, I'm just content where I'm at. I'm good. I'm not good, but I'm not bad. And so I think I'm just kind of okay where I'm at. You can't afford it because you're never just okay where you're at. What else is a joy killer? For the word of God. Disregard for the word of God. Yeah, That'll steal your joy. Just totally blowing off the Bible, what it has to say for life. Again, this is just a handful of these. But if I'm going through a trial, I got to protect my joy. Because it's the only thing that's going to see me through this. Otherwise, this trial will bring nothing but misery. And I want to help you with something tonight. Maybe you need to write this down. But suffering doesn't always have to come with misery. You can have joy in suffering. I promise you. I've done it. I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I've experienced it in the life of others. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean you have to be miserable. Because you have, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you have the ability to produce joy by the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So again, when we're going through suffering, we got to protect our joy. We choose our joy based on our perspective and our focus. Where I put my focus during times of suffering will affect my perspective on it. So many times you and I get blinded by our trials and we get blinded by our suffering that it's just this thing that's in front of our face that like it's everywhere that we look and I can't see past anything else because this is just here in my face and we place our focus on our suffering. If you're struggling in your finances, everywhere you look, it's all about money. It's about money this, money that. I can't afford to do this, can't afford to do that. I don't know where the money's gonna come for this bill or that bill. I can't afford to get sick, can't afford to take time off of work. I can't afford to give. How do those people give? How do those people drive that nice of a car? Yeah, I wish my kids could dress like that. I wish my kids could go to a school like that. And then everything is blinded by whatever trial you're in that you just can't see anything else. But here's what the Bible says. Set your affections on the things above. Here's what Jesus says. Stop focusing on this earth and lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Stop focusing on what you can see and focus on the things that you cannot see, which is the faithfulness of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 12 Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Hey, look, your joy is in heaven, it's coming one day. And for some of you, here's the thing. I know this might not be encouraging today, but at some point it's going to be become encouraging to you in your, as you mature in your walk with Christ. You might not ever have an end of your suffering this side of heaven. And I know that's probably not super encouraging right now. But here's what I will tell you. Jesus is enough, and God is always faithful. So you can do it. You got it. And man, what a sweet day in victory that's going to be one day when you get to see Jesus Christ in heaven and all of your sufferings over and done with. I think about people who have endured physical suffering over the course of their lifetime. When those people pass away, we usually say things like, "Well, praise God, they're not in pain anymore." Guess what? Their suffering was for a time of a period of time here on this earth, but it's over now, and they're no longer in pain. But know this your trials always have an expiration date, always, might not be as quickly as you want, but at some point, your suffering's gonna be over with. But during that time, don't lose your joy. Keep your perspective straight. That as you go through suffering, you realize, hey, I gotta remember, this is about the glory of God. I gotta wake up tomorrow and take that hurt that's in my heart that I feel and remember, this is for the glory of God, and people are watching to see how I handle this trial. You know, it's funny, Is that Job, when Job went through suffering, everybody's waiting to see what Job's response would be. Oh, well, let's wait and see. I mean, God himself told Satan, hey, you can have him. He's going to be fine. But I think everybody else is waiting to see. Satan was waiting, rubbing his hands together. Job's wife, just curse God and die and get it over with, man. Put yourself out of your misery. We're tired of this. Job's friends show up. Hey, what's it going to be, man? But here's what Job said, nope, I'm just going to focus, I know what God has for me, I'm not going to take a look at my suffering, I'm going to look to the one who owns my suffering. I'm not going to focus on what I can see in my circumstances, because if I do, I'll get super discouraged. I'm not going to listen to the people that are talking my ear, because if I do, I'm going to get really discouraged. I'm just going to look to where my help comes from, it comes from the Lord. Having joy during trials, though, requires us to value what God values. That's, this is the tough part. If you want to have joy amidst all of your suffering, you've got to place value upon the things that God places value on. You might not have your finances in order, but guess what? God never really placed great importance on financial stability, just that you would be a good steward of whatever you got. You might not have your health. Guess what? God never really placed a lot of value on health and well-being. He placed a lot of value on trusting Him and walking by faith. Hey, you might have suffered loss. That's okay. Everything passes away at some point. The only thing that's promised to stand the test of time is God and His Word. Everything else is, is so temporary. And so it comes back to making sure that our perspective is right. That allows us to keep joy. I'm going to value the things that God values. One author put it this way. He said, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter and not better. Hey, if your goal in life is just to be happy and wealthy and wise, no problems, life's just on cruise control, everything working out in your favor, you're gonna be greatly disappointed by life and you're really going to really gonna be disappointed in the Christian life. Again, when people set God up to be an idol giver that God just gives me really good stuff so that I can be happy, you're gonna be disappointed in who God is because often God sends you suffering because it's what you need. He said, did you just say that God gives me suffering because that's what I need? I'll say it again. God gives you suffering because sometimes that's what you need. Simple as that. And so when we endure suffering, that God's given us what we need, we should praise him. Praise God that I have a heavenly father who gives me exactly what I need even when it's suffering. So again, it comes down to what we value will determine our joy during trials. So, Verse number three, in James chapter one, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, we can endure trials by setting realistic expectations. Again, he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, he says, hey guys, in order to get through this trial and difficulty that you're going through, you've got to get your head straight. And make sure that you're thinking on the right things. And we can endure trials by setting realistic expectations. Here's your expectations you have. First of all, God is sovereign. There's not anything that's happening in my life right now that God doesn't have pre-planned. Nothing. It might be terrible. It might be painful. It might be distressing. But God is sovereign even over my suffering. Secondly, may His will be done in my life. I love that song we sang a couple of weeks ago. I think we might be singing it next Sunday. Thou will be done. That just as Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will be done, but yours. Let me, every single day, pray that God's will would be done in my life. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. I know that you're sovereign. I don't know what your plan is with this that's going on right now, but I'm just going to trust you because your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I'm just going to trust you, and I want your will to be done in my life. We need to know this. He'll give me grace and strength for every single day. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to be the source of all strength. He's promised for just his name to be a strong tower that we can run into and hide and find safety when necessary. He's got this. He's given me the grace that I need. He's given me the strength that I need. And every single day I've got what it takes. And again, be careful that this is not you getting in front of a mirror in the morning and slapping yourself on the face going, come on, Anthony. You got what it takes. Get it together. No, my strength is not in myself. I can't work this up. My strength comes from the Lord. I start my days on my knees with my Bible open, asking God to give me his strength because I don't have what it takes to make it today. If I'm relying on my own strength, I'm toast before lunchtime. Like, I got nothing. So I rely on His strength, His grace, His undeserved favor. That means that I have to lean into Him. And so many times when Christians go through times of suffering, they give God the stiff arm like, "Uh uh-uh, not right now. Nope, I can't even handle that right now. I can't even get out of bed in the morning. I can't even get dressed for work. The last thing I want to think about is praying or reading the Bible. Oh, it's like saying, I'm so sick, I can't take my medicine. It just doesn't make sense. That's where we should run to. And so when difficulty comes, I'm not going to push God away. I'm actually going to lean into God. And, and again, the book of James is so rich. Draw nigh unto God, and he'll draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and double-minded. Just... Come back to God, and He'll take care of everything else. And the moment that you take a step towards Him, He comes and takes a step towards you. And if there's any distance, this just goes without saying. If there's ever any distance in between your relationship with God, it's always your fault. I know that was really hard to hear. If there's ever distance between you and God and your relationship, it's always 100% your fault. Again, I know it's hard to hear. Because we like to blame God or blame our circumstances or blame our, our schedule or things like that, it's always 100% my fault. Because God has promised to always be there. And here's the thing: God never moved. It's not like God says, "All right, Anthony, if you're not really going to do this, I got other things I got to be doing." And he like walked off. He's in the same place he's always been. He says, "Hey, seek for me, and you'll find me when you seek with all your heart." I'm the exact same place I've always been since eternity past. But here's the beauty about God, is that while God has never moved from where he is, the second that we move towards him, he moves closer to us. So you could say it like this, God never moves farther away, he only moves closer. And that should be encouraging, especially if you're walking through trials. God didn't forget your name, didn't forget your address, didn't forget where you live. Didn't forget what's going on. He's exactly where he's always been. And the second you take a step, he's only moving forward at this point. He'll never back away from you. Final thought tonight. We can endure trials by taking the long view. (laughs) Trials will be discouraging and frustrating if we take a short view of our trials. Well, this is really inconvenient. What am I supposed to do about tomorrow morning? Well, this is really inconvenient. I'm going to have to cancel that trip I was planning on taking. Well, this is really inconvenient because I don't have time to go through this right now. You're missing the point. Because trials weren't given to you for your short-term benefit. They were given to you for your long-term benefit. And we can endure trials and have joy in trials by understanding that this probably isn't going to be fixed by tonight before you go to bed. It's going to take a little bit of time. But man, we are impatient creatures, aren't we? We just want it fixed. I want it fixed like right now. And if it doesn't get fixed tonight, I'll take care of it myself because I don't have time to wait. But God says, no, I want this trial to do something special in you. Again, we need to remember these things Key thoughts from scripture. God is at work for his glory and for my good, always. God doesn't do anything without a purpose and a plan. And again, when you're trying to talk to either an unbeliever or a a younger, immature Christian, and they say things like, well, how has God taken my grandmother part of his big plan? Tell me that, huh? I'm not going to give you an answer that would satisfy whatever you're going through. I'm just telling you this, God wants to get glory through it. You take things like what we would consider unjust suffering of people who had, you know, were at the hands of the terrorists on 9-11 who died in a burning building and never got to say goodbye to their loved ones. You look at that and go, how can that be part of God's plan Again, it seems trite to an unbeliever or to a younger Christian to say, well, it's part of God's plan because he wants to get himself glory through it. God wants us as a nation to turn back to him and put our faith and trust in him. That God wants to use a terrible situation like that to bring himself glory and to draw us closer to him. Again, to have that communication with somebody, they don't get it because they're just thinking of the short-term loss. We've got to think of the long-term fruitfulness of our trials that we have to God's at work for his glory and my good. Next, this trial, if handled properly, will produce in me a stronger faith and the ability to persevere. If I do this God's way, if I protect my joy, if I walk by faith, not by sight, if I trust in God's sovereignty, if I draw closer to God than I ever have before in my entire life, I protect my joy, I confess any unconfessed sin, I make things right with God, this actually is going to be one of the best things that's ever happened to me. It's going to bring about in me a stronger faith that money can't buy. It's going to do something in me that's going to help me to trust God more. It's going to do something in me that's going to put the ability in me to be able to have endurance when the time comes. I'm going to give you guys a smidgy little peek ahead towards next week. I want to save it because, but I, I'm terrible at keeping secrets. And not really a secret anyways. But verse number four says, knowing this at the, uh, James chapter three, uh, again, verse three, knowing this at the trying of your faith, worketh with patience, but let patience have her perfect work. The word patience is used here in, in the King James Version of the Bible. A better word for that is actually endurance. So it's not really talking about patience. Like we, we say things. sometimes like somebody would say, well, pray for me that I'll have patience. And people say, oh, don't pray for patience because trials uh, is the only way that you get patience. Eh, it's not really what it's talking about. It's talking about patient endurance, the ability to go the distance, to not give up after the first couple of days of suffering, but to be able to take it for the long haul. That if I never get relief in this lifetime from my suffering, I trust God and He's always good. But how do you get that kind of stuff? By going through trials. Again, you can read all the scriptures that you want to and memorize scriptures about suffering and trials. You won't know it until you go through it, though. You won't experience it on a deep gut level until you've seen it with your own eyes, until you've felt it with your own heart, until you've felt it in every fiber of your being, you won't get it until you walk through that. But I'm telling you this, if you do it the right way, when you're on the other side of it, you'll feel like Bruce Banner turned into the Incredible Hulk. It's the only analogy I can think of. Like, right? like on the other side of this, you'll be like, oh man, I didn't like it; it wasn't fun, but it was precisely what I needed. I'm better because of this. I'm stronger because of it. Was there a price to be paid? No doubt about it. But God is good; He's always faithful. I remember as a, as a kid, man. I was nine years old. Uh, my grandmother got lung cancer. She she was young; she was in her 40s uh, at the time. And she got lung cancer. She's a lifelong smoker, uh, and I remember as a nine-year-old boy, what do you do when people get sick? You pray. And God always answers prayer, doesn't he? That's what we're taught, that all you have to do is pray, and you gotta have faith. If you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, you can tell the mountain to get into the ocean, and it will, and so I'm just gonna have faith as a nine-year-old boy that God's gonna heal my grandmother. This lung cancer that she has, she's gonna be healed from it, and she's gonna be able to be better soon. And so I prayed. And my grandmother started getting sicker and sicker. And then she went in to have a, a scan. And it wasn't just in her lungs anymore. It was in her brain and on her spinal cord. And the doctor started saying things like, "Ah, she got like two months to live. Oh, <laughs> not on my watch. I'm nine years old and I'm praying. And my God can do anything. Man, I had ridiculous faith that my grandmother was going to make it. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And one day we got the call. She fell asleep. She never woke up. And like standing at the graveside at her funeral, I still didn't believe it. Like how is this even possible? Because I really just believed that God would do what I said. And and no lie, it would probably take me another 15 years to really figure that whole situation out. Again, when people say like, well, if God's a God of love, why does he do terrible stuff? I would honestly say in in my teenage years, in my early adult years, I don't know. I really don't. But it would take so much longer until I had the spiritual wisdom to gather the fact that God was doing something special through the death of my grandmother. Crazy thought. My mom grew up in the home of an alcoholic, abusive father. He was married seven times to six different women. My granny, the one who passed away, was his second wife. She divorced him because he was a terrible human being. And then because she was a Christian, she felt bad about it, so she remarried him a second time. I realized he's just a terrible human being, and she divorced him again, right? But here's what my granny did. My granny took all these kids that were not her kids, that didn't belong to her, and she took them to church because she was a Christian. See where this is going? My mom got saved. She met my dad. You know where she met my dad at? At church. And they made a decision when they got married. My parents got married when they were 18 years old. They made a decision. If God ever gives his kids, we're going to have them in church, and we're never going to have alcohol in our house ever, 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 as long as we live. And we'll raise our boys in church. That's all they knew. We'd take them to church. And I got saved when I was nine. Didn't start walking with Jesus until I was in my 20s. But I'm here today because, if you want to trace this back, Because I had parents who took me to church. Why did my parents take me to church? Because my mom got saved when she was 16 because her stepmother took her to church. So my granny actually fulfilled the purpose that God had for her. Who we call a Baptist church wouldn't exist if it were not for Patsy Darnell. You never knew that. You wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for her. And I couldn't get it at nine years old, but my granny had already fulfilled her purpose. She'd already done what she was supposed to do. And she's free from pain, and she's rejoicing with Jesus in heaven, and I get to see her one day. And not only do I get to see my granny one day in heaven, I get to introduce all the people who met Jesus because of her. How awesome is that? It's difficult to grasp that in the midst of your pain and suffering. It requires a level of spiritual maturity to be able to step back and view the world, not through my perspective of what's happening to me, but but the big picture of the glory of God. That's hard, but it's worth it. I need to understand that this trial is God's process for maturing me as a Christian. Trials, difficulty, suffering, this is just part of the process of conditioning. This is the weight room for us. This is where we become stronger in trials. You don't get stronger by everything going your way. You don't get stronger by blessings heaped upon blessings heaped upon blessings because you think oh life is just easy God's just good all the time and only gives me good stuff your maturity takes place whenever you realize hey how is God still good but this is the worst day of my life then you begin to understand who God really is and how faithful he is Hey, if God's really good, why is this so painful right now? And you have to grapple with these understandings of Scripture and who God is. That's where you begin to grow. That's where you begin to blossom as a Christian. Not when the bank's full of money and you got that promotion, you got so much money you don't know what to do with it, and you just got back from taking a cruise, and you're planning your next cruise, and the kids are all healthy, and they got accepted into that private school that you never thought you could afford, but you already paid up, prepaid their first year's tuition in advance, and... Everybody at work loves you and thinks you're the best thing in the world, and every day you get home, the house just smells like chocolate chip cookies, you know? That doesn't grow Christians. It just doesn't. Difficulty, trials, suffering, that's what grows Christians. And here's the thing. Uh, Again, lest you think that this chapter is full of doom and gloom, it's not. I promise you we're moving on from trials in a little bit, but I I want you to understand When you go through suffering, don't step back and go, oh, no, what's going on here? I thought God was always good. I want you to realize, hey, wait a minute. This is hard, but God's good. I don't know what's going on, but I trust him. I know that he's faithful. I know that he loves me. I know he has a sovereign plan. I'm just going to step back and trust him. I think I mentioned this a couple of Sundays ago, but it was a phenomenal piece of advice that I got from a pastor who says if you want to help your people as a pastor... Teach them to suffer well. Anybody can go through the blessings of life, but mature Christians need to understand how to suffer well. And I took that to heart. And I think from the beginning of Who We Call we've tried to, to, to help our people understand a biblical perspective on suffering. Final thought tonight. This trial is God leading me to his source of strength. This is it. This is God's way of drawing me back to him. This is God's way of pulling me in close during this time. My dad has some cows in Kentucky. He, he uh, fashions himself as a small business farmer. He got like 10 cows. And he rotates them from pasture to pasture. They'll eat in the pasture, they'll eat all the grass up, he has to move them to a different pasture, and then they'll eat up that pasture and move them onto the other one. And you go out there, and you see these animals that are, I don't know, 1,500 pounds or so, and you think to yourself, how do you get these guys convinced them to get in the back of a trailer? Like, how do you do that? It's just, like, you don't, like, kick them, you know, you don't push them. They got to go. And, I said, and so I was talking to him one day. My, my dad is, is a very quiet guy. You know, he doesn't have a lot of words to say, but, man, you ask him about cows, he'll never be quiet. I'm just telling you. And so I said, Dad, how do you get the cows in the back of the trailer? Just as it just doesn't seem like they'd want to go, and they'd, they'd figure out what's up. And he said, you just walk behind them and you start closing off fences behind them. And they can't go back into that pasture they were eating at, but they can only go forward. And at the end of this pasture is the truck with the trailer backed up to it. And you keep roping off the fence. And you get a little bit closer and you rope off some more fence so that they don't have anywhere to go. And then you get them down to the edge of the pasture and there's this big chute down at the end. And you corral them into the chute. And they get uncomfortable and they get frustrated because people are pushing behind them. And they just keep walking forward. The only place to go is on the back of the truck. And he said, eventually, they all go down the chute. They all go get up on the truck and you shut the gate on the truck and you drive off and drop them off in another pasture. And I thought to myself, I'm weird, I know, I get it. I already knew that. I don't need you to tell me that. I thought to myself, that's what God does to us during trials, He starts roping off sections of the pasture. You can't run back to the things that were comfortable for you before because they're not there anymore. And he ropes off that section. And the only way that you can move is back. But at the end of the pasture, is not prison. It's not a truck waiting to lock you up. At the other end of the pasture is himself waiting with open arms to say, hey, we got this. And God just begins to rope stuff off so that the only place you have left to run is to him. I've called friends, I've called family, they're no help. I've tried to talk to people, it's no help. I tried to entertain myself, it's no help. I tried to take my mind off of it, that doesn't work. The only place I have left to run is to the Lord. That's by design. That's what God wants for you. To drive you back to his source of strength so that you can have everything you need to walk through this trial with joy. So, why? Why? Why suffering? There's reasons behind it, but at the end of the day, the glory of God and for your good. So I want to encourage you. Again, you might say, Pastor, I'm not going through anything like right now. Please take really, really good notes because you're going to need to come back here later. You might say, hey, I'm in the middle of a trial right now. Good. I'm giving you the tools you need to walk through this with joy. If you're coming out of a trial right now, take really good notes about the faithfulness of God. Maybe start a journal. Maybe take a lot of pictures and stuff like that just so that you can remember how good God is because God's doing something in you. Don't waste your trial. Most important thing in the world, if you're here tonight, and you don't know for sure that you're saved. Please don't leave until you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday you belong here.